Amen. Well, we're going to get into God's Word together now. And this Advent season at Bethel, what we're doing is we are drilling down on the miracle and the mystery of what happened that Christmas so many years ago uh, to know what can be known about this mysterious yet wonderful person and the miracle of how God created within Mary's womb a child that was both man and also divine. And the word that we're using for this is really the best word available to us uh, because it reflects the reality of John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And uh, that word is incarnation. Incarnation. Can we say it together? We want it to be just one of these common vernacular words uh, for us. It doesn't mean that you're haughty. It doesn't mean that you're trying to show off how smart you are anymore here at Bethel. You just use the word in prayer and nobody thinks anything of it uh, other than what it really means. And uh, what does it actually mean? Incarnation. It is literally the process of becoming flesh. That is John 1.14. The word became flesh. Now, there is so much that we cannot know and understand about that because it is truly something that only God could do. And the fact that we don't just, you know, aren't in awe of it all the time is only because we are so familiar with it. But if we were not so familiar with it, we would be astonished by it. And indeed, I would say that we ought to be even with our familiarity. Last week, we studied the virgin birth and we saw how Old Testament prophecy predicted that there would be this most remarkable and unique birth. And then Gabriel comes to Mary and comes to Joseph and tells them that uh, the Virgin Mary is going to give birth and reassures both of them that this is of God. So that the child, the virgin birth, therefore, is God's mechanism, the means by which he chose, he could have done it any number of ways, he's God, but he chose to do it this way as a means by which he could unite uh, the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with a human body without uniting him with human sin. So that he was fully man, but not guilty of Adam's sin, uh, and, and certainly not his own because he would never sin. But he was therefore then the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the Holy One. A most remarkable way that God did it. Today I want to uh, uh, dig a little bit deeper on the incarnation, and to look at it from the perspective of what did it, what did it mean for Jesus to be incarnated? Like what, what, uh, what was that experience like? And how did God, maybe I should say it better this way, what was the result of what God did in terms of the person and the nature of Christ? So let's begin. What did it mean for Jesus to become human? And the Bible says and describes the experience for Jesus as one of condescension and impoverishment. Okay, condescension and impoverishment. Of all the things that we're going to talk about today, this is the easiest one to understand in principle and the hardest one to understand in reality because none of us realize how great it was for Jesus to be God in eternity past. 
I mean, how great was it for Jesus for all of eternity to experience the fullness of divine joy and gladness and happiness to be the object of the worship and the adoration of the angels and the seraphim to be in an experience where there is nothing lacking. There is no weakness. There is no pain. There is only fullness and gladness. Infinite joy was his every single moment. If you want to say that, even though God is not defined by time, but every moment of being Jesus prior to the incarnation was perfect. Maybe that's a good word. As perfect as perfection can be is what it was like for him. So to become a human, the Bible talks about the impoverishment that that meant for Jesus. And here is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which talks about this. He says this, Paul writing now, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became, what? Poor. So that you, by his poverty might become rich. Now, we Americans, we see words like poverty and riches, and immediately our mind goes to uh, those words describing financial riches, poverty. Uh, and that's not at all what, what uh, he's talking about here. Although we can obviously say that was Jesus rich in heaven? Yes, everything is God's. So, Uh, He was rich, but that's not what he's talking about, okay? Not at all. It is the riches of the experience of divine delight, okay? The, the, The overflowing gladness that was his. It was this glorious relationship with the, with the, with his heavenly father that he describes in John 17, 5. Here's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's about, this is right before he goes to the cross. He prays a prayer and he says this to his heavenly father. And now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice before the world existed. What was it like for Jesus to be God? He says, the glory that I had. He's on earth in his human body, and he is, in a sense, longing for the experience of glory that was his in eternity past. And he says, Father, I ask that you would restore that glory to me. And he's speaking there after his resurrection, which, of course, we know that uh, God did as he was highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, Philippians 2. Uh, And that glory is his once again. But in terms of becoming a human being, It was for Jesus the setting aside of that glorious experience of being God. So how did he become poor? He became poor by taking on a human body. He became poor by by assuming all the things that we don't like about being human. The negative emotions and experiences that we have in this fallen world. Jesus experienced all of those. He experienced uh, a weakness. He experienced uh, a weariness. He experienced uh, betrayal. He experienced criticism. He experienced uh, hatred and, and reviling and all the things that he went through. He experienced all of that. And we don't like those things ourselves, do we? 
And to us, it's kind of part of the deal because we grew up in this broken world and we know what people are like and to be around here, do business around here. Go to the mall at Christmas time around here is to experience other people's selfishness, which is so annoying, but I digress. Uh, Jesus had never been mocked. He had only ever been adored. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's all that he had ever heard. But he comes down here and he is mocked. All he had ever heard is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And down here he was accused of being actually uh, led by Satan. Did he ever hear that in heaven? No. No, that, if an angel ever said something like that, you know, what would the father have done? Just <clears throat> done with you. So we see then in the story that the richest of all time, Christ, becomes the poorest of all time. And that gap between what he was and what he experienced in becoming human is what this passage is referring to. Now, this is impossible for us to, to, to grasp because we don't realize how glorious he is and always had been. We know what it's like to be human, but that gap is hard for us to imagine. C.S. Lewis, I think, says it well when he writes this, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby. And before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Any, any, any uh, takers on the slug opportunities? How about crab? Go to Red Lobster and find out what happens to crab. And yet Jesus leaves that enthroned glory and willingly impoverishes his own experience by becoming one of us. And we say, why did he do this? And we know that he did this out of obedience to the will of the Father. He did this out of love for his heavenly Father. And he did it because he loves us. And he came to save us. And that's the glorious mystery of, you know, who would do that? I mean, who would willingly do that? Christ would. Christ would impoverishment. Now, secondly, as we think about the incarnation, if there is something that is and has always been inflammatory or explosive regarding the Christian teaching on the actual nature of who Jesus is, it has to do with how you get in Jesus two natures, human and divine, in one person. Okay? Two natures in in one person. To, be, to understand this, we have to begin by understanding the story of how everything came to be. And we know in the story, John 1, 3, that Jesus created everything that is. So there is then in the story, preexistent to creation, there is God, triune God, glorious God, happy God, relationally, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who purposes then to create the world and create the context by which the glorious 
perfections of the Son would be manifest, could be revealed. And so they create the world. And in the creation of the world, the Bible says that God the Father purposed it and the Holy Spirit was uh, the, the energy in it. But the actual creative agent in it was the Son. In other words, Jesus created everything. That's John 1, 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So as we look at the second person of the Trinity, we realize that all that is in this amazing universe, he himself spoke into existence. And it was his power and his brilliance that created this unbelievable universe Size and scope, beauty and symmetry, balance and harmony. Jesus made all of this. And that includes human flesh. You have flesh here today. I'm looking around. I'm just verifying that. Everybody that's here has flesh. That body that you have, our bodies are a part of what Jesus himself made when he created the world. It's part of the good creation. And it actually provides an interesting thought to me in that when Jesus made Adam, the Bible says in Genesis 2 that he took the dust of the ground and he formed Adam's body and he breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living soul. When Jesus was making Adam's body, did he know that the father had purpose that he himself would come and take a body someday? Of course he did. And so I just got thinking, can you imagine being Jesus? You've made the universe, and now you're making Adam and Eve. You're forming that body, all the parts of the body, all the nooks and the crannies of the body, and knowing that someday you yourself are going to have a body just like the one that you are making. It makes me wonder if Jesus did it and just thought to himself, someday this is going to be, this is going to be me. Okay? Now, understanding that, let's talk about what is so mysterious about the incarnation, and that is two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. And the reason this is so confusing to us is that it is not what, it's, it's weird. Or it's not, it's, it's definitely not normal. Because we are one nature, one person people. Okay, one nature, one body people. Now, to prove that, does anybody here have more than one body? Anybody here wish they had a different body than the one that they have? Okay. All right. Well, I have one human nature, and I have one body. I am one in, in one. And since that's what we've known, that's everybody that we know, we get that. That seems normal to us. And then we look in scripture and we see that Jesus is said to be two natures in one body. And that's sort of, that freaks us out, right? How can that be? How can you have two in one? This is what was so perplexing about what Gabriel told Mary when she, uh, when he, he shared with her what is going to happen. He says this, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And can't you see Mary going, what? What, what do you mean? Because all we've ever known in the whole human story is that humans are born to humans. Right? Humans are born to humans. There is a dada, there is a mama. 
and out of the dada and the mama comes baby. That's pretty much the way it goes, isn't it? Okay. And how exciting that is for us, especially to be a dad and to hear for the first time, dada, like I did this week. What a joy. Much to mama's dismay. Okay, so, and this isn't the class you take at high school, everyone. I'm not, I'm, there's no drawings, no diagrams here. Dada, mama, baby. Okay, that's just the way that it is. That's the way that it goes. That's all that we've ever known. And yet, this child, the angel says, will be born of a human, but will simultaneously be the son of the Most High God. How do you get human and God in one baby? That is mind-blowing. And that is something that has never, ever been seen before. And this is why Scripture, when it talks about what it meant for Jesus to become a human, speaks of it with such uh, awe, reverence, and mystery. For example, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now that passage is written by Paul to, he's challenging the Philippians because they weren't getting along and they were being selfish. And he says, don't have the selfish attitude. You need to have the mindset of Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? That he dwelt in eternity past, that all rights and privileges were his. But what it meant to be God in terms of the entitlements and rights were not things that he was unwilling to set aside in obedience to the Father. And so he willingly lays aside those rights and privileges and comes now as a servant to us and takes on human flesh, takes on human form. So being human for us is all that we've ever known. For Jesus, being God without flesh was all that he had ever known. The new thing was not being God The new thing was being man. Now there's a little theological formulation that says this well. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Let me say that again. Remaining what he was, which is what? God. Remaining that, he became what he was not, which is man. Exactly. So this says it quite well. Jesus, the man, did not become God. There were heresies in the early church that said that. There was the man Jesus of Nazareth, and there was the Spirit of Christ. And God the Father decided to meld the Spirit of Christ with the man Jesus, and he became the Christ. That was a heresy of the early church. That is not what it is saying. What is it saying? And, And here is where to understand what God did there, we have to understand how God uses unions, okay? Unions. Let's talk about unions. If Jesus is the union of God and man, how does God 
do this. And we find in the story of God that he is himself a union and he loves to create unions. Let's just walk through a few examples of that. An easy one to begin with is, of course, the Trinity. The Trinity is a union of three three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who are so united in their relationship that, and this is a mystery, you have three in one. We can say there is a Father, Son, and Spirit, and we can say with Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There is only one God. It is not a pantheon. There is one God, but it is a Godhead, a union of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now, do I understand that? No. Nope, 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 nope. I don't. Can I marvel and, and, and wonder at that? You bet I can. You bet I can. Here's another example. You. You are a union. Today, or maybe even you've already done this this morning, it looks like some of you did. When you looked in the mirror, you can go home and you can try this later if you'd like. Look and stand in front of the mirror and and what do you see? You see you in a physical form because you have a body, don't you? And that, we've already established for many of us, is not the body that we want, but you've got a body and that body is a physical appearance. It is a physical appearance part of you, but what do we all know about ourselves? We are way more than our bodies, aren't we? Inside this body is is me, and me with all of my joys and my fears, me in terms of my uh, personality and my uh, motivations and my attitudes and my dreams and ambitions and hurts and all the things that are the real me are inside it's 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 inside here the bible talks about the material aspect of man which is the body and the immaterial which is the soul or the spirit and we all know this don't we just intrinsically so that some of our our senior saints whose bodies are in decline really all of our bodies are in decline but uh they will tell you you know what there's still a young girl inside I'm still the same young girl I always was. And, uh, and, and, and we get that, right? What did God do when God made mankind? He brought a union of material and immaterial, and all of us recognize this. We are more than our body. Another is that, here's another union is in the church and in salvation. We are in union with Christ. When the Bible talks about us being in Christ, what is, what is that saying? That God the Father, by faith and by his grace to us, is bringing us in union with all the saving benefits of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So that God the Father now, out of his mercy, does not see me in my sin. He sees me by the righteousness of Christ. How did that happen? Because God the Father brought me into union with his own son, Jesus. And we ought to be glad for that, right? We ought to be very glad for that. And that union is a union that will last forever. So that forever I will, I'm in Christ. And forever God doesn't see my sin. And, and forever I have eternal life. That's a union. God loves unions, okay? And we could go on. There's so many others. I, creation is an example of this. 
where God creates in this universe, this amazingly diverse universe, you've got all of the, all of the harmonies of the ecosystem and you've got the, the way even the earth is so balanced in the, the water and the nourishment and the drain and up in the clouds and down comes the rain again and just all the, and then you've got the diversity of color. Like yesterday, we have cardinals behind our house and is there anything more beautiful than fresh fallen snow and a cardinal sitting right there in the middle of it? <laughs> right? You look at that and you, if you just looked at that yesterday, you cannot be an atheist It is so beautiful. Why is it that way? Because God loves to place diversity in unity. And those majestic colors, they're they're fantastic. By accident, right? The evolutionist says. But the theist goes, no, God is beautiful. And that's why that's that way. So we could go on. I think music is a most remarkable example of God's creation and how much he loves diversity and bringing diversity into unity in the harmonies and the melodies uh, mathematically that allow for music. But this is a message about Jesus, okay? What do we find with Jesus? We have a union, perhaps the most amazing union of all unions is the union of the divine with the human. Two natures, one person. And the reason this is perhaps the most remarkable is that these two are so apparently uh, incompatible. I mean, what does it mean to be God? Let's just pause for a moment. As God has revealed himself, what, what, what do we know about God? Well, we know that he's eternal, right? He is not bound by time. He transcends time. We live in time and space, these moments one after another, that where we experience uh, time, and sometimes it seems to go slow, like during a long sermon, for example. Sometimes it goes fast, but we are living in time, right? God doesn't live in time. God is all-powerful. All power is his. God knows everything. God is present everywhere. If we just stopped with those attributes, and let's throw glory in there as another one, the effulgent, radiate, radiating expression of the infinite worth of God, that glory light, the Shekinah glory, for example, of the Old Testament, that is God's in heaven flowing out and, and the, the small visions that we have, the few visions that we have in Scripture, all talk about the blinding light that is the radiant and infinite expression of the, of the worth and the inherent glory that is God's. That is God, okay? And then you look at man. What is man? Man is like the opposite of so many of those qualities, isn't he? Aren't we? Okay. Any man all-powerful? Uh, no. Any man present everywhere? Uh, no. I'm present wherever my body is. Right now I'm right here. A little later I'm going to be down there. This afternoon I'm taking a nap. Okay. And... That's where I, wherever I am, that's where I am. I am nowhere beyond where I am. But God is the opposite of that. Glory. Effulgent radiation of glory. Ever seen a human being that is radiating Shekinah glory all the time? Nope, 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 nope. And so we look at 
union, like I get a cardinal in snow. Okay, that's, I can kind of get that. But God in man is an apparent absurdity on the surface. How could you ever, I mean, it, it's easier for me to think of, of Lake Michigan being forced into a thimble than for God to be in man. That is, how does that happen? And the answer that the angel gave to Mary is probably the best one. With God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. The virgin conception meant that what God created in Mary was a completely human child with all the essential attributes of being human and a completely divine child with all that is essential to the nature of God. And the Christian teaching, as mind-blowing as it is, is that Jesus was very man of very man and very God of very God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person or the nature. I just say it this way, attributed to the other nature. Now, theologians talk about this, and here now we're walking on mysteriously thin ice. They talk about this as the hypostatic union. If you, if you do want to show yourself to be a smarty pants, just drop that word in conversation sometime uh, or in a prayer. The hypostatic union. Wayne Grudem's got a helpful diagram, I think, which uh, for some of you that are more diagram types, this might, this might help you understand it. And it's called the Chalcedonian Christology because it was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that really settled this matter against the heresies that were going on in the church. And basically what, it, what this uh, shows is the, is the big circle is the Trinity. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A picture of what in eternity past they had always been. They were spirit. They were, they were not physical. They were spirit. What is new in the incarnation is that for the Son, there is the assuming of the human nature, which includes the human body. So that for the person of Christ, there is a separate experience than the Father and the Spirit have because they remain spirit, even while the Son remains God and yet has a human nature. Was that clear as mud? Okay. This is one of those sermons that the more I confuse you, probably the better it is. I am, the more accurately I am preaching this is, is to the degree to which you walk out of here going, I have no idea what he was talking about today. Okay. Now, to avoid wrong thinking on this and the heresies of the past, we, we talk about the two natures. Two natures in one person. But the one person part of this is also critical. Okay, because it's easy to think, well, he's got two natures. It was really like two people in one person, which 
Actually, a helpful illustration of that perspective on Jesus, I think, is the movie Avatar. Okay, a few years ago, the movie Avatar came out. Many of you probably saw that, won all kinds of awards and all the rest. And the basic plot line was that uh, a planet is discovered and, and there's all these native species and there's a native uh, like people group, the Navi there. And uh, of course, the bad humans are there to plunder and to pillage because that's all that we do. Uh, so political agenda aside in the movie, uh, which I, the best description of the movie I heard was they should have named it Dances with Smurfs, or Dancing with Smurfs, uh, I thought was uh, clever. Uh, anyway, the, the, the point of the story is that uh, there's a technology which allows for a human being to be in this tube where it takes the human consciousness of the person in the tube and projects it into actually a Navi body. That's the avatar, Okay. So that you have then, in a sense, two people in one body. You have two bodies also. So that's even further confusion, which helps my aim and goal in this sermon. Uh, But you see in that, it's the mathematical opposite of the actual incarnation. Two bodies and one nature. That is not what the incarnation is. Jesus was not a divine avatar. There was the real Jesus was not in heaven channeling a divine consciousness down into a human body so that you, Jesus was simultaneously on earth and in heaven. No, there was one body. Okay. Two natures, one person. And that one person is also critical to Christian teaching. So better than Uh, deviating from what Scripture teaches because we can't understand it, I think it's better just to step back and to marvel at it. One commentator saying this about the Incarnation, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself with a human nature forever so that he... Uh, so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. I mean, to realize, and I think that's a great statement there, to realize that not only did Jesus become human, but in becoming human, he remains human forever. He has a body right now. He will always have a body, and he will always have a human nature, which means that the one who is at the right hand of the throne of God, the father in heaven is somebody who walked this earth and lived our life. It is somebody that forever will sympathize and understand what it means to be us or to say today what it means to be you friend. He understands pain. He understands relational breakup and betrayal. He understands mockery. He understands weakness. He understands all of that. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus experienced on earth and continues to understand as a human in eternity. I mean, just to think about this, this is mind-blowing, but someday... We are going to see him. And the Bible talks about him wiping every tear from our eye and all of that. There's a picture of kind of an intimate, sort of close, 
physicality to what it will be like to be around Jesus in eternity. And I have to believe, like the shepherd with his sheep, he will not stand at a distance and say, I am here and you are there, but that he will be amongst us. And to think that this Jesus will likely touch the glorified version of this body right here and maybe even hug me. That's, I mean, that's, and he will be God as he does it. Two natures, one person together. Now, this is an important doctrine. I would call it one of these, it's one of these fulcrum truths of all of Christianity. If you deny it or mess around with it, you fundamentally changed the claims of Christianity. You have a different gospel. But it also is important because it helps explain Scripture. And in two ways that I, I want to end with. First of all, Understanding the two natures in one person explains a lot of the paradoxes that we see in Jesus' life. Let me give you some examples of this. Maybe you've not thought of it this way before. Luke 2.40. And the child grew, speaking of Jesus, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'll bet, right? John 4, 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. John 19, 28. He's on the cross in this passage. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And we could point out other moments where the Bible talks about his experience or describes what he's going through. And it's, it, is, it is skewing, is that the right word? It is, it's, it's, it's highlighting, better. It's highlighting one aspect of or one nature that is within him. So most of these, for example, highlighting is humanity. How is God hungry? Have you ever read that passage? You go, how could he be hungry? He's God. Or God's thirsty. Or how do, how do you have the Father knowing something that the Son doesn't know? I thought Jesus was God. Doesn't he know everything? And yet there's something that he doesn't know? Like, what's that talking about? And there are many moments in the gospel story where it... If, you, if you're focusing on the one nature of him, it freaks you out to see him described the other way. And when we understand the two natures in one body, it explains these paradoxical moments that seem to be contradictory. If he's hungry and yet miraculously feeds 5,000 people. I mean, if I have the ability to feed 5,000 people like that, am I ever hungry in my life? I don't think so. I'm hungry. <laughs> How hard is that? If I can feed 5,000, I can feed myself anytime I want. Instant fast food. 
Yeah, the ultimate fast food is Jesus. <laughs> I'm thirsty, and yet I can turn water into wine anytime I want. Am I ever really thirsty if I'm God and I can do that? To me, no. I'm never thirsty. Instant drink, boom, like that. He grows in wisdom as a child, and yet is God as he grows in wisdom. These things are more, they're, they're highlighting the human experience of Jesus as he is growing. In his humanity, he was weak, he was hungry, he was tired, and it was real to him. And yet he was God as well. Paradoxical moments and beyond our comprehension. And there's so many times in Scripture where if, if, when you come to things that you can't understand, it doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that for our finite understanding of the mysteries of God, there are going to be things that we cannot understand. And we've got to be okay with that. In fact, I think those are the things that actually draw our hearts to worship. If, I, if my faith and my religion and my God, I totally get them, I totally understand them, I've got no issues at all, I've got it all buttoned down. Really? Is that so great then if there's nothing beyond me? There is so much beyond our understanding which draws us to worship who he was truly and who he forever will be. And secondly, the incarnation. If you accept the incarnation, everything else is easy. Everything else with Christianity is easy. It's kind of like a child. You know, children... When you put food in front of them, they're not sure if they like it or not. In fact, can I say this? And I, I don't want to talk about my daughter too much, but yesterday we fed her her very first, like, uh, solid, somewhat, like, rice cereal kind of thing, okay? First spoon moment, yesterday. At two cameras, videotaping the moment. <laughs> So for the very first time, here comes a spoon to the mouth of this child, right? What is she thinking? I don't know, but she's got a funny look on her face. And we put the food in her mouth, and she was, you know, a little unsure at first. But she liked it, right? And so in came more, and now she's like, and then she's grabbing the spoon and, you know, doing this number with it. The incarnation's like that. You're like, how is it like that? It's like the first bite of the, of the Jesus meal. And it's a, big, it's a big first bite. I mean, it is a really big first bite. But if you can accept by faith that first bite, everything else is good, right? Is it really so hard if Jesus is the, is the God-man? Is it so hard to believe that he can walk on water? Uh, no, not at all. If he is the God-man, is it that hard to believe he can stand at the grave of his friend Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come out, and to raise the dead? No, that's not so hard. If he is the God-man, is it that hard to believe that he would die on the cross as a, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, and that payment to be worthy of our guilt. That's not so hard. And if he is the eternal God, 
is it so hard that he would be, uh, to believe that he would be resurrected from the dead? That's not hard. The whole thing is good if the incarnation is received by faith. Which really brings it back then down to the personal, doesn't it, for us? And I know in this room we've got lots of people, you've received the incarnation, you, you, you ate that bite a long time ago. And you've been savoring this Jesus meal for a very long time. And every Christmas is another reminder of it. You love it. It's like eating your favorite meal over again. But no doubt here we have some for whom the supernatural claims of Christianity and the supernatural claims of the virgin birth and who Jesus was, the God-man and all the rest, you're still trying to decide whether you like that bite or not, whether you can believe it. And I encourage you to grapple with the mysteries as best you can. But to look at the rest of the story, and doesn't it make the whole rest of the story make sense? And in a way, prove the claims of Gabriel when he came to Mary and say, this is going to be the Son of the Most High? I mean, what else would you expect of God than supernatural miracles, the greatest teaching that has ever happened, and the most remarkable life that has ever been lived? The whole thing, in a sense, proves the claims about that child there in Bethlehem. And I think that's really the question for each of us is, what do we believe about that baby? Was he just a baby like any other or more than a baby? And if he was more than a baby, can I believe that he was God and man in one person? That's what the angel said. Appear to the shepherds. What do they declare to the shepherds? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, night, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is also Christ the Lord. Incarnation. More on this next week. Let's pray together.